This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Alan Hill, the Deputy Assistant Commissioner for Category Management in the Office of the IT Category in GSA's Federal Acquisition Service. Alan, always a pleasure to catch up on one of my favorite topics, uh, the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions Program. So thanks for joining me. Thank you for inviting me, Jason. Great to be here. Let's start with some just basics. Let's talk about the current status of the EIS program, the number of contracts awarded, number of agencies, out their fair opportunity solicitations. Where are we with uh, EIS? In terms of our EIS transition uh, progress tracking report dashboard, we have this public. Uh, there, the January 31st, 2021, uh, we have 212 forecasted fair opportunities. Uh, 164 of those have been released to industry. Of those 164, 93 have task orders that have been awarded. Uh, There's still 48 to be released. And let me also state that even though there's 212 opportunities, does not necessarily mean those 212 have to do with with, um, transition of the legacy inventory. It might be new services that a agency is obtaining that's that's beyond just transition. Of that, we have nine of the 17 large agencies and 11 of the 25 medium agencies that have awarded all of their task orders for EIS. So they've completed all their necessary awards for transition into EIS. Uh, remaining eight large and 14 medium agencies, they either have to release the solicitations or make an award, uh, depending where they're at. Uh, in the case of some agencies, they're, the components still have some solicitations to release and they're working on them. Soon, expecting here within the next few months to have them all released. One note is uh, we have about, uh, to date, we have about $14.5 billion awarded in task order. We have eight of the nine vendors all have been awarded some form of work on EIS. That's good news. As I've heard from vendors, there's been a major acceleration over the last three to six months. Yes. So we've had a lot of engagement with the agencies and helping them uh, finish their acquisition process. And I know we have the the March date uh, for agencies in terms of the completion of 50% disconnect of the uh, the expiring contracts. And in expiring contracts, uh, the 50% disconnect, I kind of make sure that it's understood. That has to do with a normal transition of past. This is using past data to say what has happened in the past. What's unique about this one is that we're not doing a like-for-like transition. We have different technologies now being inserted. A lot of the legacy technologies that have been around have to be removed, and the infrastructure has to be updated. Well, that is, cause of that, that could happen at a later date because you just don't change out a switch with, a, with another circuit. You are actually changing out the entire infrastructure within a building. So, but we do have a 55 of the agencies that have completed 100% of the disconnect of the legacy contracts, which is good. And, but uh, we got some work to do. And a lot of those 55 are smaller agencies, or they're small micro agencies. The big ones, there's looking just at some of the data, I'm not sure if any of the big ones, or, or not any, but few of the big ones have really migrated fully. Yeah, I, there was one large agency, Social Security Administration, that had completed 
fair amount. I'm not sure if they're 100% complete or not, but they have completed a fair amount of their inventory uh, transition. Do you have any updates on that goal that, uh, that you hope for uh, of the 50% disconnect? Uh, is there any new data you can provide? Because it's, it's just a good marker. It's not really saying, yay, they made it or no, they didn't make it. It's more about how progress is going. What would happen with a vendor that is disconnecting something? They go all the way up till March 31st to the disconnect. That takes about a month to a month and a half for that information to come back into our systems. So we'll actually see. So probably mid-May, we'll have some updated information. There's probably even some stragglers that might go beyond mid-May, too, of that. Now, those probably that information might be minor in nature, but... Mid-May, we should probably have a better picture of where agencies fall in, in, the, in that disconnect. All right, I'm going to ask you to guess, which I know everyone hates doing, but you get a sense of where agencies, how they've been doing with that inventory. I won't say give me a percentage, but do but you get a sense of what's your gut telling you about how, agent, how progress is going? There are some agencies that have, even without the EIS awards, have been doing some things to reduce their inventory. And I give an example. If you got a lot of old technology even using some of the legacy contracts and you compress that using like ethernet uh, the where you may previously had a, a data circuit with a bunch of voice circuits supporting uh, your needs an agency that combines the voice and data together to use the same circuitry that will compress uh, reduce that inventory in addition, if they're moving from legacy voice uh, telecommunications like PBX switches and moving it to a voice over IP technology, that inventory, you actually have thousands of homes maybe in a building that, that converge into a voice over IP and that inventory disappears too. So it reduces that footprint. Uh, in terms of where agencies are, it's hard to gauge all the agencies and where they're at, uh, because we don't necessarily get to see that information. We can only see it purely from an inventory perspective. I do think that this is not a something that is going to happen where you see steady decline in inventory. You'll see bulk changes in, in inventory being reduced as they do the necessary infrastructure up, updates for their network and then turn in the switch to where they move over to the new technologies. The other piece of this, and I want to talk about the new technologies in a second as well, but the other piece of this that I've heard from vendors is a little bit of frustration about maybe how long some awards are taking or have taken. Uh, there's several vendors who mentioned to me, you know, we submitted our bids over a year ago and we asked for a best and final offer and the agency hasn't responded or said no. And prices are down and technology has changed in the last year. Is GSA involved in those conversations? Yes. Uh, actually, we're having regular executive engagements with agencies, particularly agencies that have not awarded or released their solicitation. And our discussions with them, we talk about the remaining inventory that's left for them to, to, to and understanding the complexity, uh, particularly with what they have to do the transition. But if they have a solicitation that has not been awarded, we especially have been reaching out. If it's been a long time. And we do suggest for them to make sure that they, they go back. And, and uh, I've sent to actually talk to some agencies, send out emails to talking to them to say, hey, you might want to update since it's been a while and get because 
the, the vendors have communicated to me too. We are getting better pricing now. We understand things a lot better. We're being a lot more innovative. And uh, the competition is, is, is really good with, the, with the, the vendors. And it's not just from the pricing perspective, but they're being very innovative with what they're offering in terms of modern solutions too. So th- this is good for government because it helps us move not only to, a, to eliminate the legacy technology, but also helps us move to where we can better secure our information that is going through those circuitries. Let's talk about that innovation a little bit, because I think that's a key piece to EIS. This is not all about deadlines and inventory shutdowns, but really, what are you doing with EIS? One of the common concerns I hear from vendors as well is we're still still seeing too much like for like and not enough innovation, modernization, change. Walk me through a little bit of what you're seeing from your perspective. Are agencies getting more on the, the bus, the bandwagon on modernization, or are they still, I just want to get this done? And, and then I'll innovate later. It's a mixed bag. Some agencies are, are offering where the vendors can insert modernization at the upfront. There's, you know, there are some agencies that are saying, let's just start out with modernization. Other agencies are, let's get it moved over and then let's rebaseline of what we modernize in a more, sequence fashion and and there's there's a i understand it too because if you take moving from a legacy voice system to a modernized voice system you don't want your phone not working right and so you, you want to make sure that that's updated if you're taking and you're taking voice and data circuits and collapsing where they're being leveraged there's some a lot of tweaking that has to be done to make sure that voice over ip works the way it's supposed to and making sure you have good quality of service so Agencies are going out and saying, you know, hey, give us your software-defined wide area network uh, solutions, right? They may not move to it immediately because there's a lot of infrastructure for you to move to a software-defined wide area network, the SD-WAN, but they're out there and doing that. In addition, working with CISA, the TIC-30 guidance also is helping to drive how trusted internet connections is being done. Uh, to support the past, but also to support the new, the zero trust uh, art network architectures that are needed. And so CIS is working through and providing those guidance of working with the agencies uh, and the vendor community and making sure that we're, we're meeting those things. The, the thing that, you know, SD-WAN is, is, is the foundation of what is necessary to move to a zero trust architecture, which is a huge focus of the Biden administration. And, and his emphasis, uh, the president's emphasis on security. Uh, the implementation of zero trust requires a blend of, of data assessments, identify identity management. There's also the micro segmentation of the network to include what you need to do for device management and the ability to see what kind of events that are occurring on your network. Uh, the automation and instant response. So that's also the, the types of things that are being focused of where we've already added the tick 3 guidance requirements into EIS. All the vendors have signed on to that at the, by the end of March. And now it is a matter of applying those new capabilities of the security guidance to where the vendors will be able to offer the solutions that meet those requirements. Agencies are really asking on cybersecurity solutions. So the network is, it used to be the, oh, I don't like using telecommunications because to me it's an outdated 
terminology now because you can't you can't vote on security afterwards. It needs to be integrated in everything you do. And so that's very important from going to a cloud, multi-cloud environment and making sure that that you have secure communications uh, down from each of the cloud providers down to the endpoint to even to the edge in, in which edge technologies can become a factor. So the combination uh, of that, we also have, you know, in addition to SD-WAN, TICS, BIS, are essential building blocks to develop what is necessary for zero trust uh, and helping agencies be able to have uh, those uh, reduce the threat vector that we have in our federal infrastructure. And on that note, let's take a quick break. My guest today is Alan Hill, the Deputy Assistant Commissioner for Category Management in the Office of the IT Category in GSA's Federal Acquisition Service. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Alan Hill, the Deputy Assistant Commissioner for Category Management in the Office of the IT Category in GSA's Federal Acquisition Service. When you hear agencies that are saying, we're going to start with like for like and then eventually move to the, the more modern infrastructure, did the pandemic or did the, the, the last year change that approach? Did you see any kind of like agencies coming back to their vendors or to GSA and go, we plan to do X and now we're going to really accelerate to get to Y? I can't say there's been a shift because of the pandemic. I would say, and this is just kind of, from perspective of implementation of what's needed and doing a like for like to modernization. Why, what's the difference between the two? In a case of a like for like, if I have a circuit here and I replace it with a new, another circuit to do the same function, that is a lot quicker to do. Okay. But if I have to change out that technology so if I have TDM technology, I have to come in with new routers. New, the, the building might not have power over Ethernet, so I need to insert new switches in the building to provide power over Ethernet. The survey, that so, so the vendor comes in and says, well, I need to go to survey all these sites. Make sure I have a good, clear inventory of what's there and what needs to be replaced. Well, that's going to take time. In addition, they're going to have to go through and say, well, I need to now validate that inventory with the government customer and making sure that I've accounted for everything that is in their inventory to ensure that I don't leave any service unaddressed. I also have to deal with this thing called security of authority to operate. I'm now changing that actual network infrastructure and moving to a new infrastructure. So now I have to submit the necessary documentation so that agency CISO will sign off on that change. I have to have the hardware and the software that is going to be added into the network, the federal agency's network, uh, get that approved. Uh, you know, making sure that I have clear cyber hygiene processes to make sure that that stays in, in place. The vendors also, and this is what I believe might be possible, is one of the challenges with the, the agencies, particularly for agencies that have not awarded their task orders yet or released their solicitations. Agencies that are well on their way, they're going to have that necessary requirements in. They're going to have the the logistics portion kicked in. For the agencies that haven't done that, they're going to have to deal with the competing of those resources. And that is to include 
there is a potential that components may not be available, readily available as we were accustomed to in the past. And for that supply to be available might take a little bit more longer time if you think about how large the government is to, to order all the necessary equipment that would need to replace that. So that could be a bottleneck that can, can occur later as agencies begin moving forward. So, and that takes time for those vendors to not only order the equipment for it to come in, get it staged, get it prepped, and, and, and before they can even begin installing. There are things that agencies will have to contend with also. They may have timeframes that agencies don't want services knocked out. So they're going to have to think about, hey, when is appropriate time for me to replace this, these circuits, but I can't do it from, we got tax season, right? So you're not going to have much activity changing out network infrastructure during tax season because you can't, you know, stop stop the taxes from being filed and everything and stuff. So, so those type of things could, could, could impact, you know, students, you know, what, what they have going on. There's times when they're going out with the grants and things, that time frame. So agencies have different dates that may drive when activities can occur and can occur. And that has to be factored into that modernization or even like for like. There's also a clearance process. You know, the vendors have to go through that security clearance process to be authorized to be access the network and do things so that those things and you know it, it all these things could end up in bottlenecks uh, as agencies move forward that for, for those who have not awarded by now I want to shift uh, to another kind of emerging side of this which is disaster recovery uh, I had a good conversation just recently with CIO who said our coup plan really worked well over the last year. Are you seeing any sort of discussion around disaster recovery in the cloud and ensuring that the network can, can hold up? And well, again, we'll, we'll expand this, whether it's EIS specifically or even more broadly, just from the IT category perspective that, that is, is from where you sit now. Every agency is required in terms of complying with NIST is to have a coup plan. That includes whether you're in the cloud or not. And actually, in the case in, in the DOD with their implementation of CMC, CMMC, that's really going to drive how coops are done because they have ITAR and CUI type information that has to be protected. That drives it to where it has to, coop has to occur within the continental U.S. Uh, there's a limitation. Where vendors come into play in this is that connectivity necessary for that to occur. Let's say that you have a hybrid network. You may have information that is going from a data center or from cloud provider to cloud provider in order to provide that continuity of service. And so that has to be factored in. In addition to what is, what is the time frame to recovery dependent? Are you running a hot type of scenario? Are you running cold or warm? It depends on what kind of requirements you have for your agency, depending upon the, the urgency that's necessary for recovery. If it's a quick recovery in a cloud, and just because you have something in the cloud doesn't mean you have uh, immediate access. Uh, so it, it, it depends on what is in the SLAs, the service level agreements, of how soon that information has to be available, available for a disaster. So that can drive your coop requirements. Also, the more stringent you have in, in, in responsiveness, could also drive up costs too. Alan, I've enjoyed the conversation. Before I let you go, uh, one last thing here. GSA is in a tough spot in, in trying to get EIS done. There's a lot of 
pressure on GSA to, to deliver, yet you guys don't necessarily have the authority, the teeth to make it happen. And I'm not going to ask you about that piece, but, but do you get a sense that there's an, a new sense of urgency that's happening across agencies with EIS because of deadlines, because of pressure maybe from Congress with Fatara scorecard, maybe because there's something in something called uh, the pass back that told agencies to do certain things with EIS and report back to OMB by July. Do you get a sense there, there's a new sense of urgency that's happening? Or is it unfortunately been kind of a, a flat, it's not the right word, but they've been on a level plane making incremental progress slowly but surely? I do believe with the new administration coming in, the focus on security and the need to secure our uh, national data. The emphasis is not just what we have in the cloud to get to the cloud, but how we get it to our, our customers and, and, and our users of operators. And so the combination of, as you mentioned, the Passback is one influencer, uh, in addition to Fatar, but more so what is, is I consider most important is, is getting outdated technology off the infrastructure. It can't do zero trust architecture. And so for you to get there, you have to eliminate that technology so you can, it's not just about saving money, it's also about securing our national security interests. And you can't have access to the cloud without the network. You can't get that information to your end device without the network. And that without the network, you can't also, you must have security built into it from end to end. And that's where zero trust architecture comes into play. And it's important for agencies to say, what is that? that star, that North star that we're going to, and that zero trust architecture is that, and where we can be able to work in a mobile uh, environment because of the what's happened with the pandemic, but do it securely. All right, Alan, I know we could talk a lot longer, but unfortunately we are out of time for today. So let me thank my guest, Alan Hills, the Deputy Assistant Commissioner for Category Management in the Office of the IT Category in GSA's Federal Acquisition Service. Alan, always a pleasure to catch up, and uh, uh, we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Thank you, Jason, very much. Appreciate the invite. We take a break. When we come back, we shift gears to talk to DHS about 5G. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. In this part of the show, I talked to Serena Reynolds, the 5G initiative lead at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at DHS. Serena, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Today, we're talking about a new 5G framework that the Mobility Working Group uh, put together. It's really about testing and understanding how agencies can be prepared for the technologies and, and the use of 5G. So let's start right at the beginning. Walk me through what the framework is, what's it focused on. Give, give me some of the basics. Sure. So the framework to conduct 5G testing is in support of the national strategy to secure 5G. And that's an initiative that we've been focused on with the White House to really outline uh, where we're going with 5G in the interagency space and across the federal government. And what the, the framework aims to do is really support that collaboration with testing in the United States. And it's designed to guide agencies looking to conduct 5G testing and kind of go through a comprehensive set of considerations with insights into current 3GPP standards, um, projected 5G deployment timelines, existing 5G initiatives, and also looking at 5G test beds and labs in the United States. And so it really identifies the capabilities and elements needed to conduct 5G testing and provides that process to identify um, current capabilities necessary to look at use cases 
And it's kind of comprised of several elements, one end-to-end -end 5G testing architecture and mapping to 5G 3GPP standards, and then also a modular approach listing all possible testing elements needed for those different use cases. And then two examples using the framework to understand the test elements and determine which are needed for the use case. And then lastly, uh, performance and security metrics that can be collected with the framework. All right, there's a lot there. You mentioned uh, something that I just want to go back on, which is the make sure I get this right, three PP standards. What are they? Is, is that the kind of like the ANSI standard, the ISO standard type thing, or is that some, an international board? Yep, so that is a standards body, and we have several different standards bodies that we participate in, and that's one of the elements that um, we're actually focused on within our 5G CISA strategy as well, as really being able to have those conversations with standards bodies. That's an international forum. Uh, there are several different telecommunications industry members that are a part of that forum, and they have conversations on different elements of standards as it relates to telecommunications technologies. In many ways, the timing of this framework is, is really perfect because we're seeing a lot from the carriers who are talking about, we're rolling out 5G, more 5G. If you talk, if you look across the government, you know, DOD has several 5G initiatives that they're trying to open up this type of connectivity at bases. Did, did that work out just perfectly on your end? Or, or, or uh, I'm going to give you more credit. This was kind of planned. You, you probably saw the rise of the and the interest of 5G and you, you timed it well, or, or was this just, uh, I'll call it a little bit of happenstance or a little bit of both? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of uh, a lot of the conversations that we've had with our industry partners on several different uh, advisory bodies, working groups, and conversations that we've certainly had within the Federal Mobility Group and just this need. Um, I know one of the things that we've been trying to do from an R&D perspective is better collaborate and coordinate a lot of our activities. So I do feel like it's really timely. And I also feel like with the uh, recent approval and signature by the President and Congress of the National Strategy to Secure 5G, it's a really good time for us to really start implementing that plan and laying out the groundwork for where we're going to go with R&D. And how much did agencies ask you for this? Meaning, because the 5G Mobility Working Group is part of the CIO Council, I'm sure there's meetings and, and discussions. Do you get a sense that, that a lot of agencies were saying, we're lost, this is a wilderness, help us kind of fight through the trees, cut down the bushes? My, my, my metaphor is on and on, but you get what I mean. Just across the federal government, R&D is really an important component to um, the success of major programs as 5G is kind of taking a, a big amount of the attention for the interagency as we look to prioritize security and resilience within our different programs and processes. R&D is an extremely important piece of that and really being able to kind of look forward and technology grows. Um, we can see just in the last like, you know, 10 to 12 years how much technology has really advanced and um, really just kind of staying ahead of that really does require sort of this framework that all the agencies can be on the same page and ensure that business operations and mission delivery is all kind of well coordinated. And I think it's really important to coordinate testing capabilities and testing considerations as we're um, kind of looking to the future of where we're going with 5G. And I think that's a great point because if this framework didn't exist, if you all didn't take this time to look at it, you end up with the Wild West, which is what we a little bit saw with, for instance, cloud services. When OMB came out in 2010 and said, cloud first, everyone just went to the cloud, and it took a while to catch up with the cloud security FedRAMP testing. It seems like this is getting a little bit ahead of those deployments of 5G to say, okay, now we all have a baseline to start from. 
is was that the goal of this in many ways is to create at least that baseline and then if i need more security i can add it or if if you need a little bit less security you you have a floor to, to stand on yeah i think that's a lot of it and i think it was just really important as we were kind of having conversations to really be able to prioritize, especially with all of our visits to the test beds that we did last year and really looking at all the capabilities, really being able to outline where we're going with all of that, figuring out you know, what capabilities the manufacturer labs have and what sorts of testing capabilities we have in-house. I, I think one of the other things we've been doing even within CISA is kind of coordinating a lot of our activities programmatically from an R&D perspective and ensuring that, you know, within the divisions that we are able to have some overlap, but then certainly not duplication within the things that we're doing. And then you expand that across the interagency and looking at the testing tranches that the DOD is doing and really ensuring that DHS is doing a lot of testing that is of complement to those activities. And certainly with other agencies kind of leading the effort in that as, as outlined in the national strategy and just ensuring that we're all kind of talking and we're all um, looking to avoid duplication and really promote the use of shared testing resources. Um, and that's another real cornerstone of the work with the Federal Mobility Group and the Mobile Network Infrastructure Working Group as well. And just really kind of coordinating our testing approaches. I think that that was something that we really wanted to do to promote collaboration and promotion of shared lab, lab capabilities. And certainly that's what the White House has really set out in the national strategy for us to do. Let's talk about the process to set up because getting to agreement is very difficult. <laughs> hey, do we all agree that this is the path forward? You, you did some interviews, you did some visits, you looked at what's happening today. Just walk me through it at a high level, how you put the white paper together to come to this, again, we'll call it the baseline of testing and, and framework, security framework. Our team did a lot of great work in collecting information about 4G testing capabilities as well as 5G and then the Federal Mobility Group's 5G and Mobile Network Security Infrastructure Working Group, they visited over 15 labs and test beds of cellular equipment manufacturers, mobile network operators, federal agencies, academia. And the findings from the lab test visits was initially documented in an internal Federal Mobility Group report. Um, and that was presented to federal stakeholders. And then the framework actually builds on the insights gained from those visits as well as that report, and an examination of federal 5G initiatives and use cases were gathered via the working group, and, and that really proposed a modular approach to support the diverse needs of the different federal use cases and explore, you know, those new and enhanced capabilities of 5G. And then some of the things that we actually learned from the visits was looking at equipment manufacturing labs um, and just making sure that they're a really good option for federal government testing needs and that the equipment conforms to th those 3GPP standards that I spoke of earlier, and that they also continue to evolve with standards. And then also ensuring that the labs are operated by cellular carriers and are used for interoperability features and that the testing is prior to deployment of services. And then it would hopefully be unlikely that the carriers would provide lab resources for government testing. We were kind of looking at elements like that. And also just being able to make sure that the agencies could work with the carriers for temporary use of license spectrum. And then also that the federal labs, that they were a good option for open field outdoor testing, as well as specific sensitive test requirements and scenarios. And that we had a really straightforward approach for federal agency use. And then for the university labs and test beds, we wanted to have an option for mid to long-term research and development um, and campus testing. I know one of the things we've talked a lot about 
is um, you know, looking at campuses and, and what sorts of specific capabilities and, and are there future use cases for, say, um, a smart hospital or a smart laboratory or, or some sort of smart tech campus? What sorts of elements can we look at for 5G testing and what sorts of capabilities would that possibly provide? So I think there was a lot of really good um, collaboration and, and just a good sense of let's really make sure that we get this right um, as we are framing out the white paper. Serena, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we, when we come back, we can continue our conversation. My guest today is Serena Reynolds, the 5G initiative lead at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency in the Homeland Security Department. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Serena Reynolds, the 5G initiative lead at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency in the Homeland Security Department. What stood out to you as you all went through these visits and, and did these interviews? Is 5G further ahead than maybe we think it is? Is it still in the infancy stage? Anything else or anything surprised you? A lot of what we've been seeing is that it's different for each stakeholder. We've done a lot of state and local engagement as of recent. We actually did three different workshops, and this is kind of looking at the 5G program just in general. For state and locals, we wanted to be able to go out and really talk to the state and local community to better understand where we actually are with deployment, what are some of those challenges, what are some of those considerations, and much like the work that we did in the federal mobility group, we were also able to take an interagency approach um, to those engagements too. So we we did three workshops, one in Washington, D.C., one in Minnesota, one in Utah, and, and what we've seen, and, and I'm sure that it's, it's, it's very similar in the federal space, is that every state is extremely different in where they are in their understanding of 5G deployment. Um, the policies are completely different for adoption, and the concerns are, are also very different, you know, depending on things from geopolitical issues to governance to funding and the folks that are also involved. So it was an interesting opportunity for us to be able to really reach into the stakeholder community and understand some of those challenges. But also education was another really big piece of it is kind of walking through what is 5G? What does it mean? What are some of those use cases and what are some of those future uses for 5G technologies that um, the state and local community is going to be looking at? But what are also some of the international considerations? Who, who are some of the outliers that are doing you know, some of those innovative elements of 5G adoption, whether it be open RAN or network slicing or spectrum sharing and other elements. And what sorts of areas in the international community should we be aware of um, from a domestic perspective and sharing those best practices and things that are going really well um, with the SLTT community was extremely important. But I think the other piece of it was from a CISA sort of perspective is looking at threats and vulnerabilities and, and what do those mean um, as we're deploying 5G. And one of the big things that we've been kind of focused on is the prioritization of security and resilience um, in, in, in practices from cyber hygiene to looking at supply chain to looking at these 3GPP standards, economic considerations, and what do some of those elements kind of factor into adoption and deployment. So We've done a lot of engagement around that, and it's been a really surprising but also a really rewarding opportunity to kind of baseline the stakeholder community to see where they are today. As you guys were doing these interviews and collecting this data, the whole Section 889, the supply chain risk stuff started to really get going. Did that factor into this 
framework much or a lot? And, and then when you had conversations with state and locals, did that come up with them? The work that we're doing within um, supply chain is extremely important work. We know that the susceptibility of 5G supply chain networks is definitely something that we've been looking at due to malicious or inadvertent introduction of vulnerabilities into the networks. And we do a lot of really important uh, engagement through our ICT supply chain task force. And, uh, you know, a lot of the things that they're doing is kind of building on the threat scenarios of, you know, identifying what those ailments are and really being able to expand situational awareness of 5G supply chain risks and promote those security um, measures within, you know, our stakeholder engagement, our risk management products, and all the the engagements that we do with our state and local communities at federal and private industry. And then for us on the, the state and local side, we definitely heard that that was something that folks were very, very concerned about and is something that we're working with our international partners, certainly, and certainly uh, Department of State as they're beginning their engagements and NTIA is actually putting out vendor diversity listening sessions with private industry that we're a very big part of as well. So definitely working with the interagency to make sure that we're sharing information on the risks of supply chain. The framework is out now. Walk me through a little bit about maybe how this is going to help agencies as they're applying the framework to a broader mission. I talked a little bit about how this approach is a little bit more modular. And given the very unique challenges and considerations of the interagency, I think it's extremely important that um, we have that ability to kind of shift testing for different organizations. And the modular elements in the five-step testing process identified in the framework are transferable to broader mission areas like AI, data analytics. And AI and advanced data analytics are really going to be an integral part of advancing 5G networks and moving them towards that 6G platform. But the framework will ultimately provide a basis for testing any wireless network inclusive of features such as AI or data analytics. So this is really meant to be kind of a cornerstone to all R&D and 5G testing capabilities and really provide that roadmap um, for where agencies are going to go with this. Let me just tag back to the framework. If I'm an agency and I'm just getting started in this 5G space, if I'm not the DOD, if I'm not necessarily someone like NOAA or the National Weather Service, where do I start with the framework? Give me, give me some idea of how I can start using the framework today, even if my 5G is really, really in the nascent stages. I think a lot of it is, is really being able to share this document with your CISOs, share them with your CIOs, um, have conversations. Um, we're happy to walk through the document uh, with your agencies and kind of talk through what it means. We've provided a lot of briefings um, for many of our stakeholder community, just kind of walking through the document and some of the testing capabilities. And we've got a really good briefing um, that we've done to the interagency on this as well. So we're happy to, to kind of share information and, and ensure that folks are both familiar with the document, but also really comfort, comfortable. Um, we'll provide, you know, fact sheets and information sharing uh, products that will educate folks on the, the framework and some of the, the good information and testing resources that it provides. It's good to see you guys are socializing it. I think that's probably sometimes the biggest challenge with a lot of these frameworks. You don't want them to become shelfware. Serena, one thing that just occurs to me as you're going, going through this is CISA has its own 5G strategy. You guys are doing a lot of work around 5G. How does this framework and that strategy kind of come together? 
for one, R&D is an extremely crucial part of, you know, a lot of the work that we're doing within CISA around 5G. And three of the big areas that we're kind of focused on is the risk management piece and looking at how threats and vulnerabilities really feed into 5G adoption and deployment and what are some of those mechanisms and what are some of those products that we can create that really articulate that. Stakeholder engagement is another area that we're looking at. I talked a little bit about our work with industry partners, uh, the interagency, state and locals. So a lot of those conversations really do yield a lot of innovative solutions and new challenges that our stakeholder community is facing in this area. And then technical assistance is another area. And we, we do a lot from you know, cyber assessments, vulnerability assessments, to education and awareness exercises. And so those three areas are um, an area that CISA really uh, does well in and, and, and derives a lot of their programmatic activities around. And so we put out our CISA 5G strategy in August, and we are working on implementing that now. And a lot of that, what is outlined in that is aligned directly to the national strategy to secure 5G. And we really want to be able to have 5G connectivity that enhances national security, technical innovation, and economic opportunity. And so our goal is to really lead 5G risk management efforts and really promote the development and deployment of a secure and resilient 5G infrastructure. And so we've developed five strategic initiatives, one really centered around 5G policy and standards development by emphasizing security and resilience. And I know, you know, one of the things the framework is doing is really being able to emphasize and and promote those 3GPP standards. And so it's very aligned in, in that sort of way. Another is expanding situational awareness of 5G supply chain risks and really promoting security measures. And a lot of that work that we're doing in the ICP supply chain task force is directly aligned uh, to the work that they're doing in the Federal Mobility Group around supply chain risks. And then really being able to partner with stakeholders to strengthen and and secure existing infrastructure to support future deployments. Also encouraging innovation in the marketplace and and really being able to look at some of those economic levers that really foster a 5G vendor environment. And then lastly, analyzing potential use cases and sharing information on risk management strategies. And the use cases piece is a, is a large component of the Federal Mobility Working Group white paper. Um, so I, I think a lot of the work that we've kind of got outlined within the CISA 5G strategy is directly aligned to the good work that's going on in the Federal Mobility Group, and we'll continue to coordinate with them, certainly as they continue to do the work that they're doing within the four working groups that I outlined earlier. Serena, this has just been a great conversation. I've learned a lot about 5G and where we're going, where the government's going with it. So let me uh, thank you for your time. Serena Reynolds is the 5G initiative lead at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency and the Homeland Security Department. Serena, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.